day that we're celebrating and remembering the joy of the Lord, it would be a, a good idea to maybe celebrate what God has been doing within our church this past year. It was past year for me, every year I try to go in with, with a focus word for myself, a word that, that maybe will help me direct the staff, will help me partner with the elders, a word that I think describes what I just sense God is going to do. And, and the word that I've had in my heart this year is rebuilt. I mean, after two years of COVID restrictions and, and, uh, and division and all of that stress, being outdoors, indoors, online, I felt like this year was the year where we could come back together as a church to allow God to rebuild our unity together, our focus together, and our ministry moving forward. And so I wanted to take just a few moments and, and highlight some great things that I feel like God has been doing in our church. There's a much more detailed presentation on our webpage. If you want to know more about this, just look at that. But here's some highlights I wanted to focus on. Uh, number one, in 2022, many people experienced the redeeming and transforming power of Jesus Christ, declaring their faith through I believes and baptism. And 132 people of all ages said, I believe, accepted Christ for the first time just this year through our ministry. 15 people uh, declared their faith through baptism this year. And I look at our church and coming out of what churches went through over the last two years, it was great to be able to see God continue to use us to open people's eyes to see Jesus as we do we also, as we're looking through the year, 200 plus people visited the church for, uh, for their first time and over 60 of them decided to call CVCC their home and become members of our church. So God is not only building his kingdom, but he continues to build the ministry at our church. Not only the ministry of our church, but our staff. This year, God brought four key families on staff at our church as we're looking at focusing on our children and our youth and our families together to continue to build our ability to be a reflection of Christ, not just as a church, but at home as well. Uh, Pastor Chad and our junior high director, we have Patty who's helping us with connecting everyone together in ministry. Uh, we have Suzanne down at the bottom left and her family uh, serving our little babies. And of course, I'm sure everybody knows Pastor Ken and his family, our family pastor. You know, there's another area that God's built in our church this year, and that's that's online. I know so many of you are used to coming on campus, but 1.4 thousand views per month on our YouTube channel, where there's a number of people who are continuing to be at home and people who watch from outside of the area. 330 hours of watch time per month, 150 unique viewers view our worship services every week. And that's just another area that God's building. How about our ministry groups? We grew our Bible studies, adult fellowships, our kids and youth teams, small groups, other groups. I mean, God continues to work within our ministry. Look at some of our international things that God did this year. 14 different countries, five different continents. We're able to partner and support 40 plus national pastors and missionaries and their families. You know, this last year at the war in Ukraine, we had unique opportunities to minister within those specific regions where churches were meeting the needs of refugees and youth generously gave $21,857 uh, towards that effort in Hungary, Moldova, Ukraine, and of course, 10% of our budget. Um, and I would say over that because I've been spending stuff uh, additionally. <laughs> More than 10% of our budget has gone towards global missions, but how about local missions? 15 plus different local ministries and churches were served through this church. 2,500 uh, estimated people coming at the trunk or treat. 680 plus kids who heard the gospel through our VBS and sports camp. 117 kids during VBS and sports camp uh, claimed to believe in Jesus for the first time. Uh, and, and continue, we even had this great ministry last night, our, our boat parade. Here's some stats for you. 80 plus volunteers making that party possible. 1,065 um, 
over that, people were estimating, it's hard to count as everyone's moving around. Over a thousand people came to the event. Look at this, three, over 350 dozen cookies served. And I want to thank so many of you who brought baked goods to the church. Thank you for all of that. And look, 40 plus people wanted more information about our church because of that event. Remember, our goal of these events is when people come on campus, that they just leave thinking, man, one hour on that campus is better than a thousand elsewhere. And that's always been God's desire when people are in his presence, that there's something uniquely powerful and special about that time. And I think one of the best things that I'm most excited about coming out of this year is, is our vision. Our vision over the next three years, I shared with you last month, where our goal is to connect each and every person that calls this church their home, a place where they can belong, where they can be known, where they can be missed, where they can be intentionally grown, where they can be empowered to serve and encouraged to reach others with the gospel. And we're excited about some of the things that God is going to be building within our ministry beginning next year as well. So I wanted to share some of those with you, things that we can celebrate as a church as this year is drawing to a close and remind you at the end of the year that it's, our always, it's always our desire to finish the year um, meeting our budget. And we've been so close throughout the year and continue to be that way. If you were in a position to help us uh, reach our budget for the last 15 years, each and every year, you as a church has finished over budget in your giving. God has faithfully provided for our church, which has enabled us to support other churches in the Chino Valley. So I want to give you an opportunity, if you're in a place where you can help us finish the year strong, we'd love to invite you and encourage you to perfectly consider that. Uh, you can give in the boxes behind this worship center in the lobby. You can give online if you ever have any questions about where money goes or how you can be a part of that. Please don't hesitate to let me know. Let's pray. God, again, as a church, we are grateful and thankful. God, for all that you have been doing within our church. God, we're, as we sit and listen, we're reminded of all that you've been building within our homes, our ministry. God, in the way you've been building your ministry around the world. So God, again, we're here. And we're asking, God, you continue to open our eyes, allow us to see you more clearly. Open our ears that we can hear your truth, your spirit, your direction, your guidance. God, open our hearts that we might love others and love each other the way you love us. And God, open our mouths that we might proclaim your glories and your power and your truth to all, all who will listen. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, you are catching us in the middle of our study through the book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, and we are in the middle of the book of Acts, which is taking us to the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. And it's, it's been a pretty unique trip. It, it, there wasn't much of a break between his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. It was a missionary trip that just had started without much pomp, without much circumstance, without, without a lot of celebration. It just started. With Paul's vision and his desire and his focus, he wanted to build the church. He wanted to equip the Christians. He wanted to make sure that they were rooted in the truth of the gospel and empowered to live righteously and powerfully and confidently in who they were as the children of God. As he traveled through the region, he landed in Ephesus. Ephesus was a cesspool of immorality, corruption, and demonic activity in that region. I mean, it's one of the darkest cities in that area. And Paul settled there and for three years ministered the message of the gospel in powerful ways. And as a result, was, Ephesus wasn't just transformed in the image of God but that entire region was touched and changed and empowered because of what Paul did, what God did through Paul in the city of Ephesus. After he left Ephesus, he continued to, to walk through or uh, continued to travel through much of the region. And then when there was a threat on his life in Greece, he decided to come all the way back 
And if we remember last week on his trails back, he seems like he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And we got a hint about why. Listen to what Paul said when he was giving his last words to some leaders. He said this, and now compelled by the spirit, controlled, driven by, like I can't hold back. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know why I'm going. But look what he says. I do know this. In every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Paul said, I am hot footing it. Man, I am just aiming and I'm hustling to get to Jerusalem. Why, Paul? I don't know. I don't know why God wants me to go there. All I know is it's not going to be fun when I get there. And yet Paul continues to go. How would you deal with news like that? I tend to want to run from pain. I tend to want to avoid suffering. I tend to want to shy away from conflict. And Paul has in his heart, look, God is calling me to Jerusalem and he's told me multiple times in multiple places, hardships and bonds await me. And the question in my head is, is it possible that God's plan for Paul is suffering? Is it possible for difficulty to be a part of God's strategy? And if so, what are we supposed to do with that truth? I mean, if God has in his desire a plan that involves challenge and difficulty for you and for me, what do we do with that? Because if you're like me, and if I'm like you, that truth freaks us out. And that's what I love about this next passage. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 21. Paul is continuing his trek towards Jerusalem. He's continuing to go towards Jerusalem where he knows bondage and difficulty await. And in chapter 21, the first half, we're able to witness some of what continues to happen in Paul's life during that journey. Acts chapter 21, starting verse 3, you know, the, the, or starting in verse 1, you know, we, let's, let's just start. Verse 1 of chapter 21, says this, when we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail, when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landing at Tyre, for there the ship was done to unload its cargo. And, and we have the missionary journey map. Where this is a map we've been following throughout the third missionary journey. And remember, Paul went all the way down to the middle left, to the green area of Greece. There was a threat to his life. He decided to walk all the way back and go around. He met people in uh, Miletus, gave his farewell address to the Christians of Ephesus, and then he continues his travels all the way down to Tyre. And you just have this idea or this feeling that, man, Paul is just driven. It's what I call a path to sacrifice. I mean, Paul is just focused. He just can't wait to get to Jerusalem. And as he's trying to get there, they stop over at Tyre for the ship to unload. And that's where we pick up our story, verse 4. Your Tyre is one of these cities that didn't have a lot of Christians in it. Look at verse 4. He says, after looking up the disciples, that term looking up, man, I had to search. I had to dig. I had to really turn over stones and try to find a Christian there. After looking, after searching, after digging them up, we stayed there seven days. And look at this. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Man, how do you like that? You run into the great Apostle Paul. He looks you up in your small town. And the first thing you say is, hey, the Holy Spirit told us you're going to suffer. I don't think you should go to Jerusalem. I don't think you should go. 
continues, verse five, he says, when our days were ended, we left and started on our journey. And while they were there with wives and children escorting us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and returned home again. I mean, these disciples, when they see Paul, we hear Right? They's like, we, the Holy Spirit has told us, Paul, you're going to suffer in Jerusalem. And they interpret that with a message. Don't go. And we have this angst in our heart. Wait, how are two different groups of people hearing the same message of the Holy Spirit and having different responses? You ever thought of that? The Holy Spirit told Paul, Paul, you're going to suffer in Jerusalem. Paul's like, yippee, let's go. He tells the Christians in Tyre, Paul's going to suffer a hardship in Jerusalem. And they're like, Paul, stop. Don't go. And we have this angst in our heart. Wait, how are Christians disagreeing? The Holy Spirit's given the same message. The Holy Spirit didn't tell them to tell Paul to stop. The Holy Spirit just told them, here's what's going to happen to Paul. And they interpreted that. I was thinking, doesn't that happen in our culture too? Where Christians tend to disagree on things. I was thinking recently over the last couple years, remember the government was telling churches meet online. There are some pastors who are very outspoken and boisterous about this need to know we need to meet. God wants us to meet. They were very, very bold about that. Pastors and Christian leaders, and just as many, if not more, Christian leaders and pastors were on the other side saying, no, no, no. God wants us to submit and follow what Peter and Paul wrote. You have this movement of God, good people who love Jesus, who were striving to be honest and reflective of what God wants in their lives going two different ways. I was thinking about, even within our state, you know, months ago I shared there's this, seems to be this mass exodus of people out of California. As I've talked to them, they feel like God's telling them, get out. California's a kooky culture, get out. God's favor is resting on Texas, Tennessee, Florida, Idaho, Arizona, although that's dwindling evidently. Like God is calling them to go somewhere else and yet there's just as many Christians like, no, 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 God's calling me to stay. God's calling us, equipping us to be a light in the darkness. We feel like God is saying like he's gonna do a work within Kooky, California and I don't wanna move, I don't wanna miss it. I think there's times in our culture, there's times in our Christian life where good people who love Jesus hear the same message of the Holy Spirit but interpret it differently. I believe that's what's happening here in Tyre. The message of the Holy Spirit, Paul's going to suffer. He's going to be arrested and go through trials. And Paul interprets that as so. Okay, that's what I'm called to do. And other Christians say, no, 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 God, God doesn't want Christians to suffer. We somehow interpret suffering as an absence of God's work. But is it possible that God works within bondage? Is it possible that God works in the midst of tribulation and suffering? Paul comes to Tyre in his path to sacrifice, focused and driven to get where God's calling him. And these Christians entire, somehow, they just don't see it, they don't get it, they go to the beach. Paul's like, okay, I gotta go. They follow him all the way down to the beach. And before he gets on the ship to go to Jerusalem, they pray together. And it tells us in verse five that they're kneeling down. That wasn't the typical posture of prayer at that time. Typical posture of prayer is standing up, hands up. Kneeling down, I mean, that gives you a, an idea of the fervency and the emotion in their prayer. Everyone kneeling. I was thinking, man, I would have loved to be there. I just imagine some old guy, one of the elders of the Christians entire praying, God, open Paul's eyes, allow him to see your direction. 
God opened Paul's eyes and stopped him from getting on that boat. I wonder if they pray like we do to where we try to teach other people while we're praying to God. You ever notice that? God, I pray for my wife Gretchen that you just open her eyes and help her to submit as you've promised and you've directed. <laughs> God, in this situation, help her to listen to her husband. Right? You're praying to God, but you're talking to her. I wonder if Paul's on his knees. God, I pray for these Christians to toughen up. God, I pray you open their eyes. They might see you as I do. Jesus, the work you did on the cross. The blessing we all inherit because of your suffering, Jesus. The promises that you have declared, the truths that you have placed. God, open up. Man, I think that prayer time must have been emotional. When it's done, Paul gets on the boat. He continues his path to sacrifice. Verse 7 when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. Caesarea is the port town closest to Jerusalem. Finally, Paul's almost there, and the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. I'm in verse 8. And entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. You remember Philip? Put your thumb in Acts chapter 21 and flip over to Acts chapter 8. Let's remember who Philip is. One of the original deacons. You remember the church in Jerusalem was growing so fast, so quickly, so large that the apostles were having a hard time managing. And so they picked seven. They picked seven that were examples of wisdom and power with the ability to teach people they could trust to care for the people of God. Stephen was one of those. The first Christian martyr. And Philip. Likely a dear friend of Stephen. If you remember when Stephen was killed because of his testimony for Christ, a great persecution opened up. And all the Christians just kind of spread out preaching the gospel. That's where we pick up the story. Look at uh, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. It says, Therefore, because of that persecution that the apostle Paul, before his conversion, was leading up, right? Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Let's go down, verse 26. After Philip was in Samaria, God called him to this Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join his chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how can I unless someone teaches me? And that launched Philip into this message. The Ethiopian eunuch baptized right there on the side of the road. Then look at verse 40. After all that's done, look how it summarizes Philip. And we don't hear about Philip again until the chapter we're in. It says this, but Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Caesarea ended up being the home base for Philip and his ministry. From chapter 8 all the way now to chapter 21, most believe it's been roughly 20 years. Philip's now the leader of the ministry in Caesarea. He has at least three children, three daughters that God has gifted in amazing ways. Undoubtedly, the last time Philip and Paul 
interacted was likely at that time of persecution. Can you imagine that first meal? Everything God did in Paul's life from chapter 8 to chapter 20. In those 20 years, what God had done in the life of Paul. In 20 years, what God had done in the life of Philip. And there they are at dinner together because of what God does. Man, I got to tell you, I know sometimes we look and say, there's no way God can heal this relationship. There's no way God can reconcile this. I was thinking this week, man, if God reconciled Philip and Paul, he can reconcile you. Paul gets to Caesarea, hangs out with Philip, the evangelist. That's where we pick up the story, verse 10. And as they're staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Remember Agabus? Here's another guy that we learned about earlier in the book of Acts. Put your thumb in Acts 21 again and flip over a few chapters to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. The church is continuing to grow. There's this time of persecution, time of angst. The church in Antioch was just forming and God was doing amazing things. And look where it ends. Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 27. Now at this time, in the midst of all God was doing in Antioch because of persecution, now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus. He stood up, began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. In the midst of all this persecution, God raises up this Gentile city of Antioch. When God's doing all of this work in Antioch, a prophet says, hey, there's going to be a famine over here. So the Gentiles take an offering and send it back to the church. So Agabus is a prophet, probably well known by this point. Everyone respects him. So Paul finally already, again, already knowing what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. The Christians in Tyre already know what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. Paul is there in Caesarea, so close to Jerusalem. He's hanging out with his good buddy, Philip. Verse 10, Agabus came down from Judea, verse 11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, again, this isn't like big news, right? Paul already knew. There's going to be hardship. The Christians in Tyre already knew there's going to be hardship. Agabus isn't coming and giving a lot of new news. He's given more detailed information where the Holy Spirit's saying, this is what's going to happen to Paul. And again, I want you to look at the responses of the Christians. Verse 12, when we had heard this, when everyone, the disciples, heard Agabus' news, we as well as the local residents, everyone began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. The term beg, it means to implore, to urge, to exhort. It's a step short of forbidding Paul to go. I mean, just short of saying we forbid you. They're like, Paul, please don't go. God doesn't want you to go. I mean, they just have this commitment that they don't want him to move. And look at Paul's response, verse 13. And Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's almost like a reprimand from Paul. Like, what are you guys doing? I need to go and accomplish this for the Lord, and I'm ready to do it. And you guys are not making it easy. It reminded me of something Jesus said to Peter. You remember that interaction? Let me remind you, look, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. Sound familiar? The chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never. This shall never happen to you. No, this is not what God wants. God does not want suffering. And look at Jesus' response. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. Stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. Merely human concerns. You hear that? Stop it, Peter. You're thinking with your head. You're looking at things through your eyes, through your control, through your comfort, through your benefit. You're not thinking about things through God's plan, through God's eyes, through God's will. Jesus to Peter. Sometimes God works through suffering. Paul's message to the Christians of Tyre and Caesarea Stop it. Sometimes God works through suffering and trials. The same thing Jesus said. Look at what Jesus said in the book of John, John 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of it. That's why the world hates you. Jesus talking to his disciples. Yeah, it's not always going to be roses, rainbows and unicorns. Look at what Peter said. This evidently had a deep impact on Peter. Peter wrote to the uh, early church, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Man, Peter seems to think, hey, when bondage, when trial, when difficulty comes, don't be surprised. Sometimes God works through that. Look at what Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Paul seems to think it's not just sometimes God works through sufferings. There will be a time in everyone's life where there's difficulty. I think a reality for us is as much as for us, we always want to pray against, about God taking away pain, God taking away suffering, God taking away hardship, God taking away difficulty. The reality is sometimes God's plan involves trials. Sometimes God's plan requires suffering. My question for you What's a path of sacrifice in your life? I mean, Paul knew, right? He knew all the way back in chapter 20 when he started this journey back that God was calling him to suffer. And he was committed to that nonetheless. Where's your path of sacrifice? Maybe it's in your marriage saying, Brian, this marriage is hard. And culture, they give you a green light. Hey, if your marriage is hard, get out and find a better one. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Well, maybe there's a lesson for you or your spouse in the midst of the struggle. Maybe choosing to stay and minister within a kooky culture like California. And Brian, gas is, gas is like a dollar more here. I got to tell you, every time I go out of state, I'm waiting to save millions of dollars on gas. It's not that much cheaper everywhere else. Gas is expensive everywhere, evidently. But what if, what if God's calling you to stay here? Maybe uncomfortable. Maybe a challenge. Maybe some of you are thinking about leaving church. You're here visiting our church. You're out visiting other churches. Man, Brian, it's just hard. Well, here's a reality. Sometimes God works through hardship. We always want to protect our children, our grandchildren from difficulty, from challenge. Sometimes God works through hardship. I guess my question is, is there a path of sacrifice 
that God is calling you to walk? If so, are you willing to do it? There's another attribute I want you to see about Paul. See, Paul has on this path of sacrifice, heading to Jerusalem, knowing that crazy things are going to happen. That's where we pick up the next thing. See, if I was the Apostle Paul, when I finally get to Jerusalem, I'd be ready for a fight. You want to arrest me? Come get me. Right? Start putting those bumper stickers on the back of our chariots, holding two guns. You want these guns? Bring it. That's how I'd respond. But let me show you how Paul entered Jerusalem. See, even though he was on a path to sacrifice, Paul had a hope for peace. And Paul's desire was peace. His heart was peace. His focus was peace. Look what happens. We're going to pick it up. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And after we arrived in Jerusalem, look what he did. The brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after he greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through the ministry. When they had heard it, they all began glorifying God. First thing Paul does when he goes in Jerusalem, he doesn't circle the wagons. All right, guys, they're going to come get me. Paul goes into Jerusalem like, hey, we're going to celebrate. I want to tell you everything God did. He's probably reporting to James, because remember, there's no internet. There's no social media. James doesn't know a ton of what happened in Ephesus. Paul's probably in there, yeah, I'm, I'm making tents, and sweat rags dropped from my pocket, and people were snacking those and healing their mom. Remember that story? I mean, James was probably like, what? Yeah. God was healing people through my apron. James, you can't believe what God did in Ephesus. Ephesus, that creepy town? Man, no one wants to live in Ephesus. Paul's like, well, they do now. Man, God's doing a work in Ephesus in Asia. They start celebrating everything God done, God had done, and everyone was there celebrating. For an instant, all the focus about the struggles of the world were gone, and everyone was celebrating the work that God was doing in the kooky culture. But then reality sets in, doesn't take long. In the verse 20, look. Let's start at verse 20. When they had heard it, they began glorifying God. And then look. And then they said to him, you see, brother, when people start out with that, you know it's trouble. Right in the middle of your great celebration, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed that they're all zealous for the law. They've been told, they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Hey, Paul, all these Jews are mad you're here. And they've heard this rumor that you're teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses. That's a very strong word. That term forsake, it, it means that he's telling rebel against Moses, revolt against the law, divorce yourself from the Old Testament teachings. And those of you who have been walking with me through the book of Acts, is that what Paul's done? Remember when Paul decided to take young Timothy with him? He didn't have to get circumcised to be saved, but Paul wanted him to be circumcised so he wouldn't be a, an offense and a stumbling block to the Jews. Remember that? When Paul was going through all this hardship in the midst of his second missionary journey, he took a vow. Remember that? And then he went and paid an immense amount of money when he went back to Jerusalem to fulfill the Old Testament law regarding a vow. Paul was one who showed immense grace to Gentiles that your salvation, your, your communion with God is not a result of some work of the flesh. But Paul also showed tremendous grace to Jews, recognizing, man, that is such a hard thing to let go of. Look at his heart. He shared at 1 Corinthians 9. I've shared this with you before. This is Paul's heart towards that. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, so I can win Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. 
He also said, I became like a Gentile to those who are Gentiles. Paul's like, I will do anything. I will become like anyone. Man, my heart is to reconcile people to God. But these thousands of people heard rumors. One of my old uh, favorite pastors said, rumors are, even though they have no legs, they can run like the wind. Right? It just takes a little rumor and it just takes over. If I was Paul, well, I'm not, so we'll continue. Verse 23, look what happens. So they're like, Paul, here's the deal. Here's the concern. All these people, they've heard this rumor. Surely they're going to hear about you, so they have a plan. Verse 23, James and the brothers brought this to him. Therefore, do this as we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads And all will know that there is nothing to the things which you have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we already wrote them, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled from fornication. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one. Paul takes seven days. After everything Paul's done, he's looking towards being bound and suffered. Paul's attitude is not to pick a fight. It's hope for peace. James and the leader say, hey, Paul, can you just throw him a bone? We know, we know it's not true. We know you don't do this. We know this isn't fair. Will you do this? Will you go through seven days of purification? And when that's over, will you pay the exorbitant amount that it costs for the sacrifices after the vows of these four? Will you endure immense financial burden and give up seven days of your comfort in town so that these people who believe a rumor might be appeased? Paul said, sure. Why would Paul do that? He knew his heart was clear. He knew what he was doing was right before the Lord. He knew that he was good before the Lord. All the leaders of the church knew it. Why would Paul take this step? I want to show you before we finish Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to ask you to turn there in hopes that maybe... You'll mark it and frequent it later in life when you feel like you're in the midst of hardship and difficulty and everything in you is you want to pick a fight. I want to share you Paul's heart. That maybe you and I in the midst of our challenges might hope for peace. Look at what he says. Verse 9. Romans chapter 12 Verse 9 says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lacking behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, perseverance in tribulation. There it is again. Devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Hope for peace. Bend over backwards. Go above and beyond. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And look at how it ends in verse 15. As possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Ever wonder why Paul did all that? In the midst of his pathway to sacrifice, why did he bend over backwards to appease this crowd? Hope for peace. As it pertains to you, by all means possible, be at peace with all men. Oh, but Brian, it's not fair. It's not about fair. Oh, Brian, you don't know what's that going to cost me. It's not about money. 
Paul's heart in the midst of struggling, strive for peace. On his pathway to sacrifice, there's two things I noticed. Number one, oftentimes God works through trials, tribulation, and hardship. And second, in the midst of that, hope for peace. I was reading about uh, an old church father this week, Polycarp, was an ancient church father, bishop of Smyrna, and a martyr of his faith. He lived during a time of great discord between Christians who wanted to be faithful to God, but also wanted to be good citizens within Rome. The Christians led by Polycarp wanted to be good citizens. They repeatedly told the authorities this statement. This was their company line. We are willing to pay all of our taxes. We will gladly pray for those in authority, including the emperor. We will pray for the emperor, but we will not pray to the emperor. For citizens of another realm, we belong to the church. We worship another king who sits on a different throne. Under Polycarp's leadership, the Christians are like, listen, we'll pay our taxes as a government. You never need to worry about us. But we will not worship you. This world isn't even about you. It's about the authority over you. Well, you can imagine the government of that time wasn't super thrilled about that statement. So they decided to make an example they decided to send a message through Polycarp. There's a local arena, there is a school for training gladiators. And the program that day would go like this. First, in the morning, wild animals were let loose in the arena and they'd be hunted down and killed. Later in the day, the gladiators would then come out and fight. But in the afternoon, in the hottest part of the day, it was time for execution of criminals or a lot of them slaves, war, war captives, murderers, political prisoners like Polycarp that wouldn't bend. It was that time the proconsul said to Polycarp, take an oath, just revile Christ, and I'll let you go. Hey, Polycarp, there's no need to do all this suffering. Just turn from Jesus. I love Polycarp's response. Wasn't filled with venom. Wasn't vile. Wasn't cursing. Listen to what he said. For 86 years I've been his servant. He has done me no wrong. So how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? And at that point, he offered a prayer to God, was bound, stripped naked, and put into a fire to burn alive. Legend says that he didn't die fast enough in the fire. Legend has it that the fire wasn't consuming Polycarp and he remained alive in the midst of the fire. So the proconsul sent in someone to stab him so many times, his blood squelched the flames. In this article I was reading, Polycarp was just one example. There's Luther. Martin Luther knew that trouble awaited him, and he went in because he recognized that sometimes God works through suffering, sometimes God works through hardship, sometimes God works through trials. But each and every one of these examples, there is another characteristic. They all hope for peace. They were all seeking reconciliation. They were all praying for their oppressors. Two great examples near the end of Paul's third missionary journey. His pathway to sacrifice, recognizing sometimes God works through suffering, trials, and difficulty. But in the midst of it, hope for peace 
as it pertains to you, by all means possible. Be at peace with all men. Because you have confidence that God's at work and sovereign in all things. I guess the question, will you and I be committed to the same principles? Walking those difficult roads of God calls and striving for peace in the midst of it. Let's pray. Jesus, again, as a church, it's so easy to come to church and proclaim our belief in you and receive your salvation and talk about your sovereignty and your control. But God, if we are honest with you, it's the difficult parts of life that rock us. God, even now, there's many people here in our church struggling financially, struggling in their marriage with their families, struggling with their careers, worried about culture, struggling with disease. And God, sometimes it is hard to be faithful to you in the midst of challenge. So God, I pray, open our eyes and allow us to see what Paul did. God, for those people who are here or in the midst of their own pathway to sacrifice, God, may you give them strength. May you give them faith. God, may you give them courage to trust you in the midst of the fire. God, I also pray in the midst of hardship, God, may you give us the heart that Paul had, that Luther had, Polycarp had, and so many leaders before us and Christians before us. God, give us a heart for peace. Give us such faith in your plan, God, that we will pray for those who persecute us that we'll forgive those who wrong us. And God, that we will continue to trust you when people treat us unfairly. God, I pray even more, give us courage and empowerment, God, that you will allow us to be a reflection of your glory in the midst of hardship. God, bring us the ability to reconcile your lost. God, bring us the ability to restore our marriages. Give us the ability to bring home our children and our grandchildren. God, help us to be instruments of peace and not be satisfied with peace on earth, but be committed to peace with you. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.